Welcome back to the Taiku Podcast. Chris is with me. Hello. And joining us is Chris. Hi. We are back again, uh, literally, because um, my last recording of Regbeard and Mifumine the Last Samurai did not work. Um, so thank you all for coming back and uh, socially interacting. <laughs> this, this should teach you a lesson. Quit playing video games and turning your computer into a Steam box. Uh, look... I have been playing Brothers, uh, The Tale of Two Brothers, so I can be up on the 2015 games. Uh, I, too, am playing a 2015 game, so, you know, I'm, I'm only five years behind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't play video games anymore. I, <laughs> I think the, 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 last time, the last time I really rocketed on a video game was uh, Final Fantasy Thirteen. I thought you played the new Pokemon. The new what? Pokemon. Oh, yeah. That, well, not the new new one, but yeah. No, that, how many years ago was that? I, I did play Sun and Moon. That's right. Sun and, and Moon was like, yeah, three years ago, I think. Love Live School Idol Festival. I, I only log in and get my rewards now. It counts. Okay. <laughs> anyway, we're here to talk about Redbeard first. We uh, are. So, Chris, what is Redbeard about? Redbeard is the 16th and final collaboration between Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune. And it is another period piece taking place in a, the late 18th century. And it, this one resolve, revolves around a medical uh, student and a medical center. So you get this guy. It revolves around a medical student... Who, uh, not, a, not a student anymore. He graduated. His name is uh, Yasumoto, who he is a super prick. He is one of those, I went to a Dutch medical school, I'm super smart, I'm going to make millions of dollars and be the shogun's personal doctor. This is my path that my super rich and privileged family and life has put me on. But unbeknownst to him, his exes or current fiance, I don't remember which, her dad is a doctor, and he basically shanghais him uh, <laughs> to work as an intern at a poor, um, oh, what's the word? It's not rural. It just just it, it's a public clinic. There you go. Uh, a public clinic that basically services mostly poor people, a lot of uh, old folk, very seriously ill individuals. The facility is run by an older doctor who is uh, Redbeard, who is played by Toshiro Mifune. Redbeard is one of these like super gruff, um, typical Toshiro Mifune characters who's very uh, strict and to the point. And the, the film is basically about Yasumoto being broken down by Redbeard and learning how to stop being a shitty, privileged fuck who thinks only about money and begin to learn about what the... what what it really means to be a doctor. Um, Redbeard, despite his gruff exterior and mannerisms, is an extraordinarily compassionate doctor who really cares about the patients. He, he shows the utmost patience for his patients and is always willing to do what is right. And the, the film plays out kind of like a series of vignettes at first as we... Uh, first dive into this world and Yasumoto is being a prick where we it's like two or three episodes where we dive into the lives and the personal affliction and backstory of individual patients and then we get into this big huge uh segment that takes up the last hour and a half of the film 
including the entire post-intermission, where Yasumoto finally comes into the fold and learns what it's like to be a real doctor and is actually trying. He's not great yet, but he's actually trying. And, and that's basically the film. It's based on a novel by Shigeru Yamamoto, which was basically a series of short stories all surrounding this Redbeard doctor. Um, however, the longest, most important, and most memorable section of the film, which is that whole last hour and a half, is was written purely by uh, Kurosawa. It's not based off of any of the previous short stories. And there was uh, a part or a character that was based, based loosely based, uh, name taken, and maybe nothing else. I don't remember the specifics, but uh, something was taken from a Dostoevsky novel as well. Oh, I remember that. No, absolutely nothing was taken from a Dostoevsky novel. Um, <laughs> in the in the liner notes in the booklet that comes in the Criterion in the booklet in the Criterion DVD, uh, there is no Blu-ray at this time. Uh, there is a direct quote from Kurosawa himself that states, "The script is quite different from the novel. One of the major characters, the young girl, is not even found in the book." While I was writing, I kept remembering Dostoevsky, and I tried to show the same thing that he showed in the character of Nelly in The Insulted and the Injured. So, n no plot lines, no character, no nothing is taken from that Dostoevsky novel. It's just, he read the novel, and there's a vibe and a feeling, like, and he tried to emulate that. He wanted to get the same kind of purpose and meaning and emotion across that he gathered from that Dostoevsky story. Uh, so, <clears throat> this is, uh, you said the 16th collaboration between Mifune and Kurosawa. Chris, we have watched all of them. Uh, other Chris, yeah, you have not watched all of them? Um, I have not been through all of them, I don't believe. Most of them, but I don't believe I've been through all of them. Alright, well, as a, uh, as an ending to this collaboration, what, what do you think? Um, I feel like as an ending of the collaboration um, between them, it's it's a really beautiful film. So, I mean, they, they certainly leave their collaboration on a high note. I feel like the very final scene of the entire movie just happens to accidentally work as closure between their partnership um, as um, the... Um, the younger doctor, I forget his name. Um, I know we just went over it, but um, he's Yasumoto. Talking to, Yasumoto. He's talking to Redbeard, and he basically's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna stay at the um, and, and work at the public facility. I'm, you know, I'm not gonna work for these rich elite people who will pay me a ton of money just to, you know, basically not actually do a lot of real health care for them, um, just to have them around so that when they do get sick, someone can, you know, offer an elixir." Um, so uh, he realizes like where his impact is better felt on society, and for whatever reason, like the final like Redbeard tells him you're going to regret this, and I just feel like that's like obviously we 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 don't believe there's like a bitter breaking breakdown between them as much as they just kind of stopped working together and their relationship was purely professional. So you know when they stopped making movies together, they stopped talking and seeing each other. It's not unheard of. Um, in anything, but um, it, it certainly is something that, that I think is reasonable, much more reasonable than the myth of he had to have a beard and turn down every movie role or whatever, and it cost him all this money. Um, that I kind that gets Wikipedia populated. 
Um, but I feel like as, as a closer, it just happened that that final scene kind of works from like uh, um, the two of them almost like um, Mifune and Kurosawa talking to each other and kind of just saying like, well, we're going to go our going to going to go this way and it's not what we originally had planned at the start um and it just kind of telegraphs a closure if you really look into it but overall as a as a closure uh it's a great film so it works as closure but um certainly i feel like there was a lot many many more stories they could have told together yeah and this is Knox, um mufune uh, and Kurosawa really came to prominence by all these samurai films. Well, maybe not came to prominence, but like got a lot, a lot of critical acclaim because of their samurai films. And this is not a samurai film, but it's set in that same same era. Um, uh, I don't know what it is about the cover, but I thought it was a samurai film from the cover. <laughs> I mean, it, it's 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 black and white. It takes place in that feudal era. Um, it, it, I think it might be. Because on the cover, or you, the the DVD cover that I'm looking at, at least, you see Mafune with his man bun and his hospital gown, but it looks just like a regular um, kimono. Um, so, like, he kind of has that. It almost looks like on the cover that he is now in the role um, of Kanbei from Seven Samurai, because now he's older and he's filled out a little bit. Hmm. No, it, it does. It does give that vibe. This is also uh, Kurosawa's last black and white film, which is a different kind of ending. I believe black and white films uh, or color films have been around in Japan and the U.S. for uh, at least a couple of years at this point. But uh, Kurosawa kept on with the black and white for whatever reason. You know, if it looks good, it looks good. Yeah. Yeah, I think with black and white, even though it, by the, by the mid '60s, color had certainly become doable, affordable, etc. Um, you were you're, a lot of people were kind of adherence to making films in black and white just out of I guess being accustomed to it, um, and perhaps even thinking, oh well, color doesn't look good because I, I always I always had to reflect back the the way that they got contrast in black and white. If you just like instantly colorize it, it sometimes looks pretty gar like you know cl- clashing and garish, um, just because it it in, it has a full color spectrum. Um, that you don't have when it's um, in black and white, um, and, and, and I'm sure that that might have played a role as well in, in people sticking with black and white well into the mid '60s. But yeah, by 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 the time that this movie came out, I, I think most of the industry throughout throughout the world really had started to to by and large do color. I would need to look at statistics, but I assume it's over 50% by by the '65 yeah. of films are made in color. And, and I mean, if you really, if you really look at Kurosawa's films, and if you if you watch a lot of movies from that time period, and the way that color looked, uh, like a lot of it was uh, Technicolor, that really early, very bright, vibrant, but still kind of weird looking color. His none of his films would have benefited from it. Like his his films, it's almost as if they were written and visually created with the black and white style in mind. And, and and that goes to right what you were saying. You know, that's kind of how Kurosawa was. That's what he was used to because he had to do black and white. So if you just follow that same style and that same filmmaking mode, and all of a sudden you're just magically using color film, it's not going to work. There, there's a the different visual approach and stylistic approach that should be taken when you're doing color and black and white. I mean, we're so used to color now 
when you see a black and white film like last year's The Lighthouse, it's a very different style of acting and cinematography. You actually you have to accommodate for that visual language of color versus black and white. We're just we're just in a time period now where we're used to color and the way films function in color that something like The Lighthouse stands out so starkly because it has to be completely different to work in black and white. It's the same thing for back then. Kurosawa just, he, I feel that he did what he did, and not that he was unwilling to make that jump to color. It was just that this is how I want my films to look. This is the visual aesthetic that I'm going for, and color does not serve that. Yeah, I mean, even if you look back uh, five years ago when he did Yojimbo, he did that in black and white, but he had that one color scene where he had a bunch of grad students just color them in, literally. Uh, so, looks a difference just a couple years makes. Yeah, and I, 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 I agree with Chris. I think this is a wonderful send-off. So, lo- looking back, the first film that Kurosawa and Mifune worked on together was Drunken Angel, uh, where where Mifune plays a fucking uh, gangster with tuberculosis. All of those all of those earlier films have Mifune just being this wild animal, you know. And even in Stray Dog and stuff, where he's not being a gangster or a villain or some kind of crazy person, he still has this insanely youthful vibrance to him that is anxious and raring to go and in stray dog the the buddy cop movie with uh, shimura you know he's eager to prove his his mark make his mark in the world prove that prove himself and he ends up losing his gun and his gun gets involved in in killings and it's just like see mifune you're too young you gotta you gotta wisen up you gotta mature a little bit so that you can handle these things cut 26 years later Mifune is incredibly wizened. He's much older now, and this is just where where he is. And it feels like a completion of Mifune as an actor, um, like this kind of mini arc. Um, just looking at Mifune's growth through Kurosawa's films, the roles that he's taken, all the way up through like Yojimbo and High and Low, you can see him slowly becoming more mature, more wizened, he's less rash. And in Redbeard, boom, it's just like it's the final piece of that story and you can't really go any further in that trajectory. And it's so the film is so lovely in 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 this very spiritually peaceful way. It's so kind and compassionate. Um it just it feels so right. Uh, that this is where where they would separate. And and like Corey had mentioned uh, when we first recorded this, Kurosawa's output also dramatically slowed down after this. He After Redbeard, he did one film over the next decade, and that was Dodeskaden in 1970. And then he did Derzu Urzala in 1975, which was a fucking Russian film. That wasn't even Japanese. Kurosawa couldn't get funding, and so he went to Russia to make a film. And then he did two movies in the 80s, and then his final three films in the early 90s. So this after putting out a film a year, you know, two films a year sometimes, just pumping through this incredibly prolific phase in his life, and it just, 
it feels right that Mifune's not there for the rest of it because it's a different it's a different Kurosawa, it's a different Mifune. And this is such a beautiful point to leave that off of because it's such a humanistic film. So, so wonderful. I believe the documentary mentions that uh, Kurosawa had a big of a writer's block at the time and a big of a funding block because um, no one wanted to make his movies anymore, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then what really reinvigorated him was going to Russia, doing Der Suizala. Uh, that's a movie that I guess he wanted to do for a very, very long time. I'm watching it in the podcast that we recorded like two years ago or whatever. Um, <laughs> but he he always wanted to make that movie, but he knew that it would have to be in the Russian wilderness. He, he never got a chance, I guess, until that point. Um, and he made a, a beautiful movie. But uh, with, uh, with what you were saying about Regbeard, he started with... Uh, Drunken Angel, where Shimura is this very, uh, very nice, very kind doctor, and now we get to Regbeard, where uh, um, Mifune being cared for for the doctor in Drunken Angel, and now being the doctor in Regbeard, I feel like there's a very satisfying narrative arc for Mifune. Absolutely. And that's something that, like, this whole time that we've been watching these movies, my brain never thought about the progression of Mifune as an actor um, across the films. It's just like, wow, he's constantly amazing, and <laughs> this character is amazing for X, Y, and Z reasons, and he brings this additional element to the film that really etches it out. But when you stand back and look at that you know, 50,000-foot level, you're like, wait a minute. Yeah, <laughs> even Seven Samurai Kyojimbo, seeing him as that kind of... Uh, wild and weird uh, samurai, or not even the samurai, to uh, Yojimbo where he is the uh, the Shimura samurai. Actually, he's, he's basically taken over Shimura's role over over the course of the years as Shimura gets older and uh, Mifune gets older. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I was gonna, I was gonna point that, like, he, sli- he slid into the Shimura role in, like, movies towards the, really the late 50s and then the 60s. I think maybe starting with Hidden Fortress. Um, yeah, to, well, he was Obi Wan. Yeah, to, yeah, he was Obi Wan, <laughs> and then and then and then it's just kind of progress a progression from there, um, and then almost just as it so happens, Shimura's roles get reduced and reduced. Um, I mean, he's in this movie for like three lines of dialogue. Um, one I scene. still never went back and looked because I did not. I did not <laughs> spot. It's just like the blinking these blinking you miss rolls for him now. He just comes in, he hands money over, and then he leaves. I mean, it's it's very much I it's just and I and I and I think we've been over this, but Shimura's output as an actor really had started to kind of wane by this point. He wasn't working that much, if I recall. That I would need to confirm that to be a hundred percent. Yeah, and even if he wasn't working as much, he's definitely not working as much with uh, with Kurosawa. And he's getting older. Uh, I don't know quite how old he is, but um, you know he's putting in a lot of work. Let him rest. Yeah, he would have been 60 at the time of uh, Redbeard. So I don't know uh, any of these movies because you know most of these movies we don't get to watch. And he also has 304 acting credits to his goddamn name. Oh, gosh. So um, he absolutely never slowed down making movies. He's in like five movies a year, every single freaking year, up until he finally slowed down around 1976. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I'm just. But, but I don't know if well. they're all. Yeah. They could be bit roles, like like in all these Kurosawa films. Yeah. You no. Know. 
Yeah, I, I was going to say, looking at looking at his credits, I mean, it's basically divided into three columns, and um, the last column covers 20 years, and the first two cover basically 20, 20 to 25 years, roughly. Or no, the first two cover 30 years. So um, it is a slight slowdown, and yeah, we don't know how much um, actual, like, how big the roles were, if he was just in them for a scene or two. Or if he had like starring roles, because yeah, most of them we we don't know. We've never seen. We'll probably ne- we probably never will see. And he and that's okay. Yeah, and you guys have another um, another Kurosawa collaboration, so we can look forward to whenever he shows up again. But um, getting back to the Magnum Hank Regbeer, uh, I also like this movie. Um, it it was a a beautiful movie, a great end to this collaboration. Unfortunately, it's ending at all, but um. This feels like uh, like a a culmination not only of this uh, of Mufune's career arc with Kurosawa, but also of Kurosawa's growing storytelling arc um, as he gets further and further away from the kind samurais that uh, that are helping those in need, and he gets more and more into this um, this area where. Uh, he gets. He seems to get more frustrated with the politics, govern, the way people are governing, like even from high and low to this. Uh, he seems to be touching on a lot of topics like that. But uh, I don't know what was going on in 60s Japan, 50s Japan. So maybe he wasn't at all trying to comment generally on things. Yeah, that, that that'd be really. I think we talked about that a little bit when we recorded it the first time. That it really seems like that this is a culmination of all the various themes. Almost as if, you know, he's been talking about these themes and these messages his whole career, and nothing fucking changed, which, spoiler alert, 50 years after that, nothing has still fucking changed. Um, and, and he kind of funneled all of these various ideas and themes and messages that he's been talking about across a, a, a variety of films and he just funneled them all into this one film. That's why, you know, the vignette structure works so well. Um, he's able to address multiple things within the context of a single story. Yep. I was gonna I was gonna point out, um, and it's it's certainly something that that is relevant to Japan in the sixties. Uh, definitely something that's relevant to the Amer- an American viewer in two thousand twenty is just like the total inequity in, in healthcare access that the movie addresses. And how there's there's a, a side scene. It's about ten, ten minutes. He goes to this wealthy noble, Redbeard, basically, essentially to make money to to actually live on um, and have a decent quality of life. He goes to this wealthy. He kind of treats a couple wealthy um, wealthy nobles um, in terms of just a, a you know they he like you know gives them medical advice, medical treatment when necessary. Um, he goes to this one guy. Um, and the entire scene boils down to Redbeard saying as politically correct as possible, like, you just don't feel good because you just sit there all day. Like, walk. Go walk around, please. Stop eating so much. <laughs> yeah, stop eating all this salty food and, and stop just sitting down all day. Like, please get up and go for a walk. No more white rice. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but, not, but not without the, I fucking told you, and you're feeling so much worse now because I told you... And you didn't listen. Please listen. Please listen to me. Yes. And and um and then you just see that kind of p- 
paralleled with the the what happens at this public health clinic and how like everybody who's in there like it's so many like heartbreaking stories of human struggle and like these the one like early in this like the second major story arc pertains to this this gentleman he's beloved by his town because he basically just works himself to the bone for them and to help them um and he's kind of like lifted up and and paraded around but Redbeard kind of criticizes them. He's like, you guys want him to get better so that he'll keep doing work for you. Um, but but you, you see you see that people like that who, you know, they have like a genuine good soul and they just are, are just their, their health is just decaying, but they're they're not giving up. And then this other guy who the solution is, is just remarkably simple and he doesn't do it. And Redbeard has to go back and be like. I gave you the most the easiest advice to follow, and you still didn't follow it. Yeah, next scene is quite uh, quite comedic too, because it shows the noble that he's helping, like just from the face, you can tell that he has some labored breathing. Um, and then it, as it pans more and more, you can see he's like leaning on this thing, like barely staying up, leaning on this thing, and he's also uh, quite overweight. Um, and obviously he's not walk around any. He's he's eating very poorly. Uh, all of those things. Um, typical Kurosawa comedy, very subtle, but uh, still very funny. Yeah, it's very visual. Like it, you, the dialogue, the dialogue makes a point, and then as you just kind of are are engrossed in the scene, like yeah, there, Kurosawa has all of these little bits of comedy he he sprinkles into it, um, but you do have to watch it and see the, see, the, see the comedy because it's not pointed out to you. Yeah. What I also want to get at here is, uh, I mentioned this last time we, re- we recorded, but this is one of my favorite parts, is um, now that it's been like 20 minutes, I don't remember his name again, but the new doctor. Yasumoto. Yasumoto. Thank you, Chris. You're always there. Um, I try. I try. Yasumoto uh, initially is very reluctant to wear the doctor's um, gown. Um, which signals to everybody in the town that uh, this person is a doctor, he can help you. And it is very, as the patients say, it is very comforting for them to see that because then they know they will receive this level of care, they will feel better than uh, before the doctor walked in. But he doesn't want to do it because of all the reasons that you said at the beginning of this, Chris. He doesn't want to be here, he wants to make his millions making or doing nothing and serving noble, noble people. Um, but eventually... By the, the middle end of the movie, he is wearing the robes, walking around town, and someone, uh, someone obviously poorer, um, runs up to him and says, "My daughter is sick. She's, uh, she's crying. Blah blah. Uh, I don't remember, really know exactly what symptoms she was describing, but he immediately looks, uh, looks at the doctor, and says, "You have measles or something," um, and uh, directs her to the clinic. Uh, and at this point, he finally realizes the power of these robes. He uh, that was maybe the big, big turning turning point in his, uh, or at least the tangible turning point in his character. Where after that dope ass fight? No, the, for Yasumoto's character. Well, yeah, but I mean, sorry, like yes, but he's having that turning point, but it comes after that fight, right? Oh, uh, I believe that is after the fight, yeah. That's all. That's all I was thinking about because that that fight is seared into my brain. It was so cool. It was. Sorry, continue. But yeah, that that moment for for him is the moment when he realizes the power of these robes. He realizes what he can do to help everyday people. Um, 
because the the lady uh, the mother was so so happy that um, her daughter could be created at all that something could be done about it and he was proud of uh, the work that he's able to do to help these people and um, he realizes that when people see these gowns um, they see a doctor and they see someone who can help and that's someone that he wants to be now it just it, it's such a well written film that it, it ne- and that's one of the things this movie is three hours and five minutes long but it never feels like it, there's not a single moment that is wasted each scene each sequence each vignette each piece is is very intelligently laid out so that you can logically and believably see Yasumoto's growth you know there, there's so many other movies that in the in the essence of not wasting people's time if you will that you you would see this kind of progression either be the point of the entire film or happen within the first 15 or 20 minutes so they can get to the quote-unquote real story but but kurosawa he, he it's a very languidly paced film but it feels so brisk and energetic because nothing is wasted every scene and sequence has a point and a purpose so that when you get to a moment like yasumoto finally saying no this is this is i want to wear these robes now i fi- i'm finally willing to put on the uniform properly it, it doesn't just feel like earned or logically attached to it feels like this big triumphant moment and you're just like yes where other movies would end the film there kurosawa says no now that we've gotten now we now we have this other story to tell where he's actually really trying but he at this point, he just knows that he wants to do this, but he still has to learn how to be good at it. And it's 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 such a well-written film. I think it's what I'm really 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 driving at. It's so magnificently paced that, like you were saying, Corey, it feels so awesome for him to get to that moment, and it's because of that. Kind of like the the final arc where where Yasumoto is much more dedicated to to the to the clinic realizes his role in the clinic um and and really kind of his last bit of character development which happens they, they rescue a girl from a, a sick girl from a brothel and uh there's the, the awesome fight scene which is just it's the only bit of action and like you know fight scene or action in the movie um that is a very brisk feeling three hours but the the fight scene itself is is great and it ends and then Redbeard's like, yeah, doctors can't do this. Yasumoto patch all these people up, <laughs> um, and then, um, but the, the, that, that final arc, which I feel is just the most powerful arc, um, just because of kind of what it addresses. There's, there's, there's this kid who's a thief, um, petty thief, basically just steals food so his family doesn't die, um, but he gets caught, and um, I, I won't spoil beyond there, but. There, there's a lot of just like powerful emotion that that shows Yasum that really articulates what Yasumoto thought he'd be doing versus where he realizes the people he needs to make an impact with are. Um, there's a great scene t- in there where Redbeard is trying to feed medicine to the sick sick girl, uh, and she just keeps batting it away time and time again. But Redbeard just keeps doing it. He's like, I'm gonna, just gonna keep trying. I'm not gonna get angry. Just gonna say, stay as you know, calm demeanor. It's just, it's just business. It's he's just doing what he's here to do. Um, it can take as long as it needs to take. And Yasumoto sitting there over over her shoulder, just watching the whole 
whole scene unfold, and I think he's learning at that at that point exactly how to be good at what what he needs, what what his role is at the clinic, how to be you know how to actually help these people and how to help sick people as best as you can is is to help them almost on their their terms. Um, they may not they may refuse medicine to start, um, but you know you just keep keep trying at it and eventually it works with an airplane trick which is just hilarious <laughs> another big of curse out yeah <laughs> yeah you, you think there's no way she's gonna fall for that oh she fell for it <laughs> yeah it's fucking airplane every time I can't believe that he went with the airplane trick and we're, we're gonna we're gonna dive into the documentary but like in the documentary it's basically said that that scene was just Mifune just leading the actress along like we're just gonna keep doing this like like i don't know exactly how it was scripted but the whole scene like he just basically carried I, i'm sure i mean maybe the script was like Redbeard struggles to administer medicine to the girl eventually he succeeds and then they just went with that uh yeah from the, from the way they get surviving in the documentary that's basically all the direction they would have gotten both from the script and from kurosawa and uh, they make an amazing amazing scene from it and, I want, and, and talking about some of the, the scenes and just the overall quality of, of filmmaking, um, a couple other scenes I really loved. So when Yasumoto shows up at the clinic and he's getting a tour of the facilities, like there's not a single moment that there isn't some activity happening in the background. This is like a living, breathing clinic. It, it's not just you know a private tour. Like people are just going about their days, working, treating patients. People are showing up sick. All of this is going on, and, and meanwhile, there's just a tour tour occurring, and it's almost like the tour's off screen, but the actual function of the clinic's on screen. Um, but we're witnessing it through the eyes of the tour. Um, that, in the grand scheme of things, has no bearing on the clinic. Nobody at the clinic really cares that much about this guy getting a tour. Like, you know, what's what's the point? It's just a guy walking around getting a tour, meeting Redbeard at some point, and that's the extent of it um and it just shows us how i think kurosawa's attention to detail in making this this true to life like meticulously designed 19th century uh japanese clinic was um because because not a detail is spared and that's really the case with the whole movie um it's just set design everything so so meticulous um i understand the film took a long time to make and i'm sure that played a big role in why and um, I've touched base on the um, action, the, the fight scene, the, um, the the medicine scene. I think at the very end of the towards the very end of the movie, there's a scene where women are, are shouting down a well, um, and, and, and the reason why is very powerful. But the scene itself is just so emotionally gripping. They're just in the way that the camera follows their voices down the well, um, all the way to the bottom, and then kind of showing pointing up and showing these women yelling down the well it's just i think an extremely strong piece of filmmaking that captures all these emotions uh it it almost made me cry when i watched it the first time um and it's just one of those scenes just kurosawa at his very strongest that whole bit it captures this beautiful blend of mysticism if in a way you know the the, the whole uh, superstition way of of thinking and belief prior to medical science merging with medical science you know they're in there and the the 
parents are dying, the doctor is trying to do what he can to save them, and the and the women are are trying to speak to his ghost to bring him back to not have his ghost go to the other side. And I think that's where the beauty in that really lies is is in, not in the clashing of these two belief systems, these two structures, but in the joining of them. Um, and that's something that is not not shown or addressed very frequently. And with Kurosawa's films, you know, he's done these these ghost stories with uh, Throne of Blood and stuff, where you have the, the people taking things into their own hands and praying to their gods and following all these superstitions. And so it feels like it's very close to Kurosawa's heart that we still believe in these things and we still try whatever we can, but we have to let, you know, medical science do its thing because, hey, that's also real and actually important. Um, and they, when the, the boy survives, spoilers, um, like the women aren't like, see, it's because of us. Which, which I think is a very uniquely American problem, is that when something turns out good, that they come back and there's like this really weird reaction. It was because we prayed that we saved this motherfucker. And it, it, it pisses me off so much. But, but these women in the film, they don't do that. They're just thankful for the, the survival of the boy. And they, and they show that appreciation to Redbeard and Yasumoto. They don't try to take credit or have the superstition be presented as better than the science and neither do the doctors they don't come and say you dumb women for trying to shout at his spirit like it, there's none of that it's just this beautiful cohesion and i think that's what makes that such a, a beautiful scene such a beautiful sequence yeah i would agree i would agree it, there, there's there's a selflessness at the clinic the whole the whole time uh, and we get the the opening. We make it. It, it felt like at the start when when they talk about Redbeard and they introduce him, you must you think like this guy is just a dictator and like he's just and he's the the only authority at the at the clinic, like the only doctor who knows what he's doing. But it just it it becomes much more apparent that he's just lifting trying to lift everyone up and make the whole make it so everybody at the the clinic can treat patients as well as he's learned to um and there's no there's nobody you nobody there's better than anybody else the person who's who's scrubbing the floors is just as important as the person who's who's you know administering medicine or you know what have you um there it's just a shared partnership and a shared burden at, at doing whatever they can to help these people which is definitely i mean i feel like american medical drama it puts a lot of onus on just like the one heroic doctor who comes in and it's the brilliant knows everything and or the power of or you see it you know on other pieces of media the power of prayer and how our prayer did it our prayer saved the day there there's not a savior in um in in this environment it's just the clinic itself is the hero i love that about this movie Uh, i did want to step back for a moment we mentioned this last time, and as you mentioned, set design and all of this, um, seemed pressing to mention again, but uh, when uh, he walks in, he asks, uh, when the Yasumoga walks in, I remember his name, when the Yasumoga walks in, um, he asks why um, everyone is in these in these very white robes, why everyone is not on Tatami Max, and um, 
I don't remember if it's Regbeard who explains or one of Regbeard's other assistants that explains, but they say, uh, on these floors it is easier to see any imperfection, with these robes it is easier to see any imperfection. When you see that the robes are white and clean, you see that uh, everyone is at least not doing worse than the last time we checked on them. So uh, that is why we do these things, even if it is uh, a bit of a sacrifice to the comfort of the patient. Um, yeah, that was that was the doctor that Yasumoto was replacing um, when he was giving Yasumoto the tour of the facility. And, and that's kind of that's that that kind of helped set the stage where you think Redbeard is a dictator because this guy who's leaving is a prick. He never had the emotional growth Yasumoto does. So good riddance to him. Um, but after he says that, it was one of the patients I think who chimes in and say, "Yeah, Tatami also is fucking ridden with filth and disease and can store shit mm. inside of the ridges, and that's not not healthy. It's it, you don't." You do not want tatami in a medical facility where people are sick because it keeps that stuff in it. It's like you don't have a carpet in a hospital. Yeah. Um. Uh, well, did anyone else have anything else? I believe we've mentioned everything that I wanted to mention, or at least that I remember. So. Yeah, I would only I would only remind everybody it's an extremely quick three hours, but it's also set up in a way where there's very easy to identify stopping points so if you're like me and you watch it start watching it at 10 at 10 p.m on a friday night uh <laughs> you, you don't have to stay up till one in the morning to finish it without really like losing anything um it's it's been yet styled so you just you know one sequence ends and you just kind of can can leave the movie right there and come back uh and still get like a full appreciation of it um, yeah the intermission comes in at an hour and 52 but um, and that's right after the badass fight scene. Uh, but really, like the 90 minute mark, like right at 90 minutes and some odd seconds when that story ends, um, that was where I stopped and picked up the next day. I think that's the better stopping point than the intermission, because that next 22 minutes is where they go to the brothel to get the girl and then whip some ass, and then after the intermission is all all with the girl back at the facility so it's kind of one giant story mm -hmm. uh, for that last hour and a half great intermission music though it's good yeah all right let's uh take a short break hang we will be back to talk about the last samurai um if we're in a documentary not the i will gladly talk about the tom cruise movie though because that movie is awesome and people need to reappreciate because it's become a joke and it's not a joke i've never seen it back and we are here to close out the Mifune uh, Kurosawa partnership with uh, Mifune The Last Samurai, a documentary that just dropped or uh, dropped a month plus ago now um, from uh, Criterion's streaming service. Uh, it's a documentary all about Toshiro Mifune and uh, we, we recorded this once, but uh, my recording setup was not correct. So now we're doing it again and we're going to do the uh, Quick and dirty edition, but uh, 
<laughs> what were some of your favorite parts of this documentary? Just jump right into it. Chris, I know you got. Uh, you're going to say the best one, so you just go for it. Yeah. So, so the the, the documentary opens. Um, there is this one. He's he's basically a professional swordsman in film. Um, does a lot. Does a ton of fight scenes throughout um, his career. He's been in a ton of movies with Mifune, and his claim to fame is really that Mifune has killed him like over a hundred times in movies. Which means like this guy is showing up multiple times in each movie, getting killed. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> and he's he appears very proud of the fact too. I would be, but yes, he appears very proud of the fact that his job and his real like career accomplishment is he's guy who dies repeatedly in multiple movies. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes. Especially by by the hands of Mifune. Yes. Yeah, it, it's been so long since I watched this that I, I really can't remember most of the parts that I liked. Um, unfortunately, the negativity did stick with me. I, it's not a very good documentary because it doesn't really talk about anything. This is the kind of Japanese PR puff piece that I mentioned in the Dodeskaden podcast, either uh, that you've heard or will hear next month. And uh, it's just, you know talks about his films it's much more about uh, his relationship with his films with kurosawa and less about the man himself so thinking back on it i i think the best parts really are just where it talks about his work with kurosawa because even though the man did something like 200 films and only 16 with kurosawa they those are the the legendary films those are the legendary mifune films the ones that everybody holds up in esteem higher than the films he made with other directors even even though he's made many many good films uh and some other really great films the the kurosawa ones those are the ones that always land the best and whenever they they talk about that it just feels uh it it feels genuine genuine in its joy uh, the way that it talks about it unfortunately because at the time the documentary was made both kurosawa and mifune had passed away Uh, they both passed away in the mid 90s like a year apart um so it it relies on stories from people that were just around them but the the absolute best part of the the whole movie and even if i didn't like it very much and have disliked it further it it exists for one reason and one reason alone, and it was a letter that Mifune wrote to Kurosawa at the end of his life. Or no, the Kur- Kurosawa wrote to Mifune. I can't fucking remember. It, it, it was all. from it was from Kurosawa to Mifune, right? Yeah, I believe Mifune yeah. had passed away before Kurosawa, and Kurosawa wrote this for uh, Mifune's it, funeral. Yeah, it had to be that, because Mifune was sick for, for the final years of his life, yeah. too. Yeah. And Kurosawa was sick enough that he couldn't attend the funeral, but he did want to write this letter, this very heartwarming, touching letter for yeah. uh, his friend. Yeah, And they read, they read the whole letter um, in the documentary, and that is a fantastic thing that exists in this universe. It's super super good and if that's the only place you get to hear or read that letter then the documentary deserves its its right to exist mm-hmm. yeah the other great that was wonderful the other great parts of this documentary include uh basically any time that they are interviewing the uh actresses that worked alongside Mifune because they are much more um shall we say unhinged than uh everybody yeah. else they're a little more honest about things like yeah. they say yeah um 
like one of them is the the girl who Bifune's character was uh, was acting with, or not acting with, of course he was acting with her, uh, <laughs> that Bifune was treating uh, in Regbeard, and she describes having to do the scene where Mifune keeps trying to feed her Megasen and she keeps smacking it away as uh, she literally got no direction from Kurosawa and it was just Mifune leading the scene and um, you see as we talked about the, the kindness in Mifune's eyes as uh, he tries to c- continue feeding this Megasen and like the kind of derangedness in her eyes and eventually the acceptance that this person is not going to try to poison me or hurt me um he's just a doctor trying to help one of the best scenes in Redbeard. i love it yeah. but uh yeah there was there was a lot of really really great stories about mifune's time with kurosawa um i i wanted more about Mufune himself, but they really gloss over that. They mention he had a drinking and driving habit, like it's not a bad mm, thing. It's, yep. it's awful. Um, they but they don't his, really... Uh, his failed production studios, or I mean, I don't think it was his fault that like, failed, it was more circumstance, but um, they mentioned his failed production studios, so a lot of his roles that like, he started to do in the, the latter half of his career, where he was like, still this samurai, but he's so old that he can't do everything that he was able to do before. Yeah, it really glosses over that, but there's so much... Because we're going into the documentary for Mifune, like, he's a great actor, and I really wanted to learn more about him, but it's, it's more about his work in the films, mm. and, you know, I, it's okay. It's okay. And, and I love... All the, the 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 footage they show from some of his other films that I, I haven't heard of or seen, um, so it's just it's just great to see more of the master uh, doing what he did best, even when he did it horribly, uh, supposedly. <laughs> I would say I would say this the the and, and I think so much of it just has to do with um, with just kind of what you're what the filmmaker was told like what what the information he was actually able to get out of the people he he interviewed but it's such like a high level introduction almost to mifune like you would almost want to watch this and then start watching mifune's films Mm. not the other way around if you've watched a ton of mifune films you know there's there's a couple nice nice anecdotes in there but for the most part it's really like toshiro mifune was born did this did that did this died um not a lot of substance to it unfortunately but it was um, super short too wasn't it like only an hour and 10 minutes or something it was a really short documentary yeah it's just yeah it's it's just uh and again i think i think like the the feet the the female actresses that are interviewed they by and large really bring up the most kind of substance they bring they'll make like a really nice point though and then you'll hear nothing else at that point like (laughs) there's there's um one i forget who it was but she basically said like there wasn't a lot of opportunity for women in kurosawa's movies and you're like okay we gotta go into this they don't go into it yeah and that's disappointing but uh i think the mifune's uh both mifune and kurosawa's children were pretty involved in this uh they were yes and there was like some we we talked about this before, but there was like some uh, relatively prestigious Japanese actor, current Japanese actor, when they filmed this in the movie, and like we had no idea who this was. <laughs> he, he didn't. He didn't have anything to do with with the Price Rights in China. He's just sitting there, and he's just like, "Hey, everything's awesome. I'm awesome. Kurt Mifune was awesome. Everything's great." 
Yeah, he's he's the Koji, one feeding uh, the Koji lines. Yaku show. <laughs> he's the one feeding the Scooby Doo lines. Yeah, whenever yeah, whenever they got whenever they got to go back to like steer it back in the direction of uh, no substance, um, they go back to him. So, um, but yeah, it's not. I mean, if you've watched a lot of, I mean, I've I've read and, and you get this at the con- going to conventions as well. There's a lot of real like we got to be careful what we say. The company we have to say this in the interest of what the company wants us to say. So mm-hmm. that's what it is. You know, you can't can't complain too much about that i guess yeah. you can but I mean, it's not going to do anything any yeah better. you can you can complain a lot about it but it's something that's not going to change and it's something that's just you know this documentary suffers because of stuff that's like way out of its control yeah uh, uh there is a uh there is an introductory document kind of documentary ish type of thing um that criterion push pushed with uh their buffune collection as well uh, this was, I don't remember if we said this, but this was released on, I believe, 4, 4, uh, April 4th um, as a uh, 100th anniversary of Mufini's birth. So um, there's a different documentary that's like by an actual critic, and she's introducing all of Mufini's movies, and this was actually fantastic outside of the uh, the things that we talked about that were good, the, the dudes who got killed over a quadrillion times or whatever, and then... Um, the interviews with the actresses and the letter that was read, I think those make The Last Samurai worth it, but like if you really want a deep dive into Mufune, Kurosawa, and how those films matter, uh, watch this introductory thing. It's like 20 minutes, and it's much better than The Last Samurai. One thing that one thing that I also want to add that was cool with The Last Samurai was um, at the very start, they're showing, they're showing a lot of clips from these pre-war, um, pre-war historical films that were basically lost to time um mm, yeah that's right. either either basically destroyed by the um government or kind of just i mean we all we we can go on a rant about how uh films were archived in the 1910s 1920s they basically weren't um so like you have like these snippets of these really amazing scenes you're like i want to see more of this movie and they're like this is all that survives of this movie you're like oh great but like that's really cool that i would just love like a two-hour documentary on that in and of itself but um yeah so that's nice to pick your interest in in these really old um films but prepare to have your heart broken most of them don't exist Mm -hmm. in their complete form anymore the framing and context of that was very strange though Yes, it was. <laughs> right. I'll have to watch that introducing Toshiro Mifune piece. I didn't watch that. Oh, yeah. It was great. Um, so, anyone else have anything else on this? Or uh, Regbeard, Toshiro Mifune, Kurosawa uh, partnership, and literally anything? I would just say that, um, I mean, 16 films between a director and an actor is really, like... I don't know what the most in a partnership is, but this has to be up there. Like, you have a lot of these great directors who have their one or two actors or actresses that they're always working with. But even then, like, you get, like, six or seven, and that's, like, you just feel like that's a full body of work. And we got more than twice that. Um, I know I had mentioned it. It's, like, the, you know, I love the Scorsese-De Niro partnership, um, um, among others. But, like, it's just, there, there's something that's just, I, I think... Kurosawa and Mifune are more inseparable than any other partnership I can I've ever seen. Um, it's if I think of one, I will immediately think of the other. It's not like it's not like De Niro. I'll go, oh yeah, De Niro's films with Scorsese are amazing, or I'll go, Scorsese's best films are usually with De Niro or DiCaprio now, to be honest. But um, 
But like I can think of their bodies of work outside of working with those people. But even though there's there's plenty of work Kurosawa and and did without Mifune, though I think about half his films had Mifune in them. Do I have that right? Maybe more than half. Yeah, he he, he did thirty three total. Yeah, fifty percent basically. Yeah, and um and Mifune, it's like one tenth of all his movies, if that, <laughs> are with Kurosawa. But they're like just. I mean, if you're making a top 25 Mifune performances, all 16 of his Kurosawa movies are going to be in that top 25. Like, I haven't obviously not seen all of his films, but I mean, it's just like, I don't think there's any bit of critic. There's any critic who doesn't rank all 16 of those films as 16 of his very best performances. It's just such an incredible partnership. Um, and I don't think it's one we'll ever see again. The landscape of, of filmmaking has changed so much. And almost all of it for the better you're not as beholden to like you're stuck with this studio like you know you have to work with the directors the studio gives you um obviously kurosawa and mifune were such just gigantic names they had some pull but um even even then now it's a lot different um and and definitely for the better because actors and, and directors have a lot more freedom with who to work with where to work um but consequence of that is you're not going to see a 16 film partnership hmm. that takes up 20 years of the, each each person's career basically yeah and, and because of course while you were talking i was researching that i know that is from what i can tell the um highest number of actor director collaborations in forever all time yeah. uh the only one that come the only ones that come close is john ford and john wayne Oh, yep, that would make sense. Yeah. I think I think that was 13 movies, and Ingmar Bergman and Max von Sydow, which I think was 12. Yeah, that was the uh, that was the one I wasn't sure of how much they had done. Um, um, I I knew John Wade and, and John Ford hadn't passed Mifune and Kurosawa, but came close. But I didn't know about Bergman and von. Oh, all right. So um, that was the life and career. Of uh, Koshiro Mifune's collaborations with Agira Oh, wait. Kurosawa. Wait, what? <laughs> Satjit Ray and Somitra Chatterjee, uh, an Indian Hollywood filmmaker. Yeah, in the film industry. Mm-hmm. They have 15. Ah. Uh, I was about to say, they both... did, they, did they make like 500 films? <laughs> yeah, no, they, they did 15. So, real close. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna. I was wondering because some some um, some older like silent film eras. I mean, and, and even early talking films like there was such a just churning out these movies every month or two um i was wondering if any of those had collaborations that that surpassed um mifune and kurosawa but that's if they did they didn't make this wikipedia list i found that i had to go through and count (laughs) uh all right so um let's close this part out where can we find both of you online uh you can find me on twitter um at antonius pius you can find me on Twitter at Gokufi, uh, Instagram at Frogmoths, and um, you can find my YouTube channel, Cups of Night Films. All right. Um, let's take a short break, and I will be back with Helen to talk about Keck Please, the hockey comic.
we are back, and Helen has joined me. Heyo! And we are here to talk about the hockey webcomic by, uh, I don't actually know how to pronounce it. Ngozi is how you say her first name. I don't remember the last name. Ngozi Ukazu. Um, hopefully I cannot say that very terribly. But, um, it's very webcomic. clear that the two of us are more used to talking Japanese names than Nigerian names. Yep. Um, anyway, hockey webcomic, uh... Let's see, there was a couple, well, a Kickstarter for every every volume, or there will be. Uh, the fourth one is upcoming, um, and I don't, I don't think there's any other Kickstarter random other junk was there. Uh, let's see, so, uh, Check Please takes place over the course of four years of college, and so the idea is that each of those four years we're going to get their own volume. So Ngozi has done a Kickstarter for years one, two, and three individually, and they also did one this past winter for, um, what they're calling the chirp book, which mm, is just little yeah. extras, biddies, tweets, etc. And they're going to do a Kickstarter for the fourth volume yeah. either late this year or early 2021. But the volume, the story also got picked up by the publisher first second here in the U.S., who's putting it out in two volumes, a combined first and second year and third and fourth year. Because when you make a quarter million dollars kickstarting your gay hockey <laughs> webcomic, people take notice. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's where I was forgetting the chirp book. But, um... Let's get right into this. Uh, Check Please is about this kid named Eric Biggle, and that he goes by Biggie. Everyone has a, has a nickname on hockey teams, I guess. That's just a thing. I mean, that's really Apparently. just a thing in sports. Apparently, there are a lot of like hockey things that we have all learned about through this comic. Yep. I just uh, learned this morning that apparently kegs, um, keg stands is not an actual term, or no, keggers is not an actual term, I think. Keggers is not an actual term. Like, not, what do you mean? Uh, apparently kegsters is a real word, but like keggers isn't, or something along those lines. Anyway, uh, there, there's a lot of good vocabulary in the series. It's very weird. Yeah, uh, agreed. There, there was clearly a lot of research, which we can talk about later. But uh, follows Eric Biggle. He's a kid from um, Georgia uh, who goes up to Massachusetts to Samwell University to play hockey. Uh, and in his first year, he's kind of this. Uh, uh, at least on the ice, he's a, this timid kid who, who doesn't like checking at all, which is the act of uh, smashing your body against someone else or getting smashed by someone else. Um, and uh, throughout, throughout the first year, at least, it's just his journey trying to get over that checking fear and uh, getting to a more and more prominent place within the same well men's hockey team. There are, like, five billion other characters... Uh, but the main ones are Jack, the current captain, and uh, the two comedy guys, Ransom and Holster, and uh, also Shiggy. He, we were talking about earlier, he actually has a name, but uh, it's a running joke that we have no idea what it is within the context of the series. And there's some other characters who pop up a little later in the series, like big shout out to Lardo, who is this tiny art major who is the manager of the team and can drink everybody under, like, canonically. And there's some and since this is a hockey team set at a college, more and more characters join, you know, in Biddy's second, third, and fourth years. So we meet, like, Chowder, who is, Ngozi has said, is her favorite character. Um, she said that at um, last year's National Book Festival. Um, and we also meet um, there's Dex and Nursey. Um, I know <laughs> Betty, Biddy's senior year she introduces three characters whiskey tango foxtrot so very, yeah very intentionally right there <laughs> um so 
lots of fun characters in the series, although sometimes she'll post about some other character, and I'm like, who is that? I have never seen them before, and I'll have to go looking through her blog post, being like, oh, these are some of Biddy's teammates from his first year who are just, like, buying a house together, okay? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's all the, all the original goalie in his first year was jo- Joe Johnson? Josh Johnson? Oh, um, yeah, because I remember, I was re- I've been reading this for a lot longer than Corey has, and... I think a lot of this got cut out in the print versions of the book. In the original webcomic, at least, he showed up more frequently, and he was this goalie whose face you never saw and was completely fourth-wall meta-breaking all the time. Like, I think at one point, he gives Biddy his room in the Sambo hockey team's house. Like, it's described as half fraternity house, half crack house about the crack. And he gives Biddy his room there for the next year, saying something along the lines of advancing the narrative. <laughs> yes, and he uh, he also writes the introductions to the to each of the books um, in very fourth wall breaking. Uh, he is a character, but he is also sort of a narrator, but he's also sort of a writer, uh, a writer of the series, maybe uh, sort of character that um, just says. Well, Biddy's hey, here's- the real narrator of the series, since the initial framing device is that Biddy runs a vlog channel called Check Please, I think? That or that's a name he gives it later. But he runs a vlog where he talks about his college life, he dishes out family feud history to deal with baking, like, there's apparently something that has gone down with the family and their jam-making traditions, like, (laughs) there is something that has gone down there. And so that's the initial framing device. But obviously Biddy can't, like, be carrying a camera out with him on the ice when he's doing hockey games. So the perspectives shift around a little bit between what Biddy is definitely clearly telling an audience and what is happening to him more personally. Yeah, Like, his absolute fear of getting checked at first. Like, we see him, like, semi-comedically just sort of crawled up in the fetal position on the ice while some of his teammates are saying, you know, I think we could really make a play based around that. Like, can we we try that, guys? (laughs) Yeah, um... Uh, at least each of the chapters are, or most of the chapters are framed such that Biggie is uh, starting one of his videos, like, telling about whatever is happening in his life at the time, and then it goes into the rest of the chapter where a person can change, where it can be more third person instead of first person's point of view, etc., uh, etc. Et but that's, that's pretty much the quick and gary of the, the early part of the storytelling. We can get into more of what we liked and disliked about the later stuff later on, but uh, how did you actually get into check, please? Wait, I forgot. Have we mentioned yet that Biddy is very, very gay? Uh, not yet. Biddy is very, very gay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's funny because I remember before I started reading the webcomic, I saw Ngozi's Boo Ford at Otakon. Uh, it was one of the years it was in D.C., so it was only a couple years ago. And so she's got this big banner that says, check, please. And it's got Biddy there holding a pie. And I was looking at the banner thinking, is this about a hockey team? Or is this about some poor waiter who just wants people to leave and <laughs> trying to give them their check? So uh, it was the former. It was not my elaborately imagined version of the later, but I caught up to it. I think she had already started writing the second year at that point. I think she was done writing Biddy's first year. And I just really enjoyed it because it's got a good sense of humor. The characters are... Uh, normally when you say that the characters are like really fleshed out or super deep, you expect like tons and tons of time has been spent with them. But she actually, since she has such a large cast, some of the characters don't get a lot of time on screen, but all the time that they get, she uses very efficiently, like quickly establishing quirks and personalities, you know, how the characters would interact with each other if they were like locked together in a room for a while. And so I just really enjoyed it from the get-go, just a lot of fun. And 
I feel like the story was already popular by the time I got into it, but it has certainly grown over time. Like, one year at Small Press Expo, I was volunteering, and I was, like, keeping an eye on one of the doors during my volunteer shift, and I was right by the door that her table was at. Small Press Expo has the foresight to usually place the most popular creators on tables near the door so that if they have long autograph lines, they can just sort of, like, snake in and out. And I swear, for the full two or four hours I was there, she had a line the entire time. Yeah. Like, the popularity of this gay hockey webcomic, which is not queer baiting, is just mm, reasonably huge. Yes, I would say so. Uh, at least from my observation. Uh, very third-hand knowledge. Like, I started reading this, uh, like, a week ago. Well, oh, I thought you'd been reading it longer since I know I proposed us doing it before. Mm-hmm on manga in your ears but since it wasn't actually a manga we were joking about doing it for an april fool's day thing but then decided not to because we can never actually get together our april fool's day episodes <laughs> we've been trying and one year we will actually pull it off yeah uh it'll be the most unexpected year it'll be like october for <laughs> uh no i've not been reading it at all uh, because i wanted to like I, I think we all know the uh the history of me and my memory um, I just probably wouldn't have remembered it very well if I had read it earlier. Um, or I would. I think have you just liked doing everything under pressure, and that's why you finished reading like everything immediately before a podcast. That I was mean, actually the assumption I'd been working under. That, that also, like, I did that in college too, and in high school. Like, basically my entire life. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I started this a week ago, and I just fell in love with the comic by the uh, middle end of. The third volume, I just fall in love with every character, every every emotion they were going through. Um, I knew I didn't get really emotional during my graduation because my high school graduation, I just went to college with all of my friends, and then my college graduation, I just kind of uh, left before everybody else, and I didn't I didn't actually go there, uh, go to the graduation itself because I had enough of that in high school. There's like 700 people, I didn't want to do it again. Um, <laughs> But in terms of the fictional graduations, I get extremely emotional somehow. Uh, and watch, watching, especially like Ransom and Holster graduating, who are the big, funny, comedic people who are always uh, very supportive and yet very. Um, they knew how, how to lighten the mood, especially with Jack around, who is a very serious space person. Also, uh, Ransom and Holster had this miraculous ability to pull out a whiteboard from wherever the heck they are to quickly <laughs> explain hockey things to the audience. Yeah, uh, yeah, but like seeing them graduate, seeing Shiggy and Largo graduate, that was extremely emotional. Uh, but I think like the big moment where I kind of fell in love with this comic, like we we the audience know that Biggie is gay from the beginning, or I would argue many people suspected. inside the comic have probably figured out that Biggie is also gay. Yeah. Um, one I does mean, not sing that many Beyonce songs in the shower, <laughs> unless you are a gay man. And it wouldn't be unexpected that they would, like, have a bet on that, like they had a bet on the other thing. Uh, it is very funny, though, because the first time Biddy addresses it in the comic, he's talking to his friend. He's talking to one of the teammates, Chitty, and Chitty's like, yeah, you know, this is great, man. And he's like, but do I have a sign for this stuck on my back? Like, there was one week where I had, like, four people come out to me. Do I just have a <laughs> sign on my back saying, we'll accept all, you know, orientations? Because I, too, sometimes feel like I have that sign on my back. <laughs> Since I've had a couple of friends come out to me before they've come out publicly, and I'm like, I'm okay with this, but is there a sign? I, I feel shitty a lot right now. I definitely feel this <laughs> pot-smoking guy who got into, like, Harvard Law School with ease or whatever the heck he did. Yeah, and I mean, he rocks the stash, too. The porn stash? Yep. 
but yeah, that was really the moment when like I really fell fell in love with the series. Uh, it's not as you said, trying to beat you over the head with uh, gayness or LGBT issues. Um, it's just being uh, being subtle about it, like letting them live their lives. It's kind of funny since Jack, um, who is one of the main characters in this comic, Jack Zimmerman, he's got a bit of a past since his dad was this really famous hockey player. So people have always expected Jack to live up to him. And Jack does like hockey, but he had sort of like a bad, I think it was like end of high school or something. So he's gone to college a bit late. He hasn't been drafted yet. Um, But (laughs) apparently one of his old friends, you know, has gotten drafted into this fictional hockey team. And people are inside the comic and fans are both like, ooh, I wonder if they have a steamy relationship together. And I was like, come on, guys, this just feels like shipping nonsense. And then at some point it was confirmed that they did have a steamy relationship (laughs) at one point. I was like, whoa, (laughs) shipping nonsense confirmed. Whoa. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That was, uh... I mean, that was certainly un- unexpected. I think it was unexpected. That was, It was definitely unexpected for me. Yeah. And Jack is easily the most serious character we come across in this mm-hmm. comic, so he makes a really fun foil for a lot of the other characters. Like, I would say Ransom and Holster are probably amongst the silliest, but everyone else has their, you know, very good-hearted moments of levity and such. Like... Oh, so Biddy's a big baker, and so he's always baking stuff in the oven. And I thought one of the best gags in the series was when the oven breaks, the guys in the house are wondering, oh, should we chip in to get him a new oven? And someone's like, I've just done the math. We owe him like three or four ovens with the number of boxes <laughs> for us. <laughs> yeah. And the other running joke of him just walking into kitchens and suddenly an oven, or not an oven, a pie is in his hand, and everyone's like, Biddy, how did this happen again? Yeah, the series is really good if it's running jokes, and... I've been thinking recently a lot about how the pacing for something like a webcomic, which updates on, you know, like a weekly or biweekly basis, is so different from the way a story needs to be paced if it's, you know, presented as full volumes to the reader, whether it be like Biddy's first year or Biddy's first and second year put together. So I wonder how well some of these gags are going to work for readers who are coming into it that way, whether than just through the webcomic like I did. But I definitely had a lot of laughs where in one of the last updates as Biddy's getting ready to graduate, they conclude that yes, everybody did have to basically lock him in the house for three days to finish his <laughs> thesis because he's been avoiding it so much. And they had to like unplug the oven. Yeah, something along those lines. It, it was a pretty extreme measures. Yep. Or how there's things going off in the background, like uh, two of the guys are sharing a room, they get fed up with each other and one moves into the basement and then there's just sort of an off-screen gag and then you realize he has completely refurbished the basement to be like the best part of the house now. Oh yeah, because his dad was like a, a woodworker or handyman or whatever. So he um, also picked a lot, picked up a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, and this being, you know, one half fraternity house essentially, there are a lot of kegsters, you know, these big wild parties at the house, and there's at least one fire. I kind of thought they had set stuff on fire like two times instead of just one. <laughs> but it's a lot of good-hearted fun, and there's definitely attention to it at points since we know Biddy's gay, but he's not out to his parents at the beginning of the series. He's not out to his classmates either at the beginning of the series, and like we all live in America. We know that some people are going to be very accepting of your gayness and some people are not. So there's a tension there at points where we're wondering, oh, are things going to be okay? And spoilers, they largely turn out to be okay. I say that solely because I I want to give people a little less anxiety reading those parts. (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's a tension in there and it doesn't feel forced, but it feels like in some way Ngozi is being very smart about it. 
she knows her readers will fill in with their own anxiety so she doesn't have to overplay her hand in what she actually commits to the page. Right. And she, uh, or Biggie, like, opens up the story by saying he wanted to go to Samwell because it has this history of being very accepting and stuff. Uh, but he does also mention that there are moments on the ice when people are throwing out gay slurs and uh, all sorts of random stuff like that, like hockey itself. Sports, uh, in general, is not known as a very LGBT-inclusive place, uh, except for women's sports. Yeah, I was going to say, the women's sports seem to do a lot better than the men's sports. Like, like I'm pretty sure for... I'm in D.C., so of course my local teams are like the women's soccer team, the women's basketball team. I think both of those have, like, out lesbians on the team, and they are all cool with this. Mm -hmm. But the guys' sports, like, I don't know, guys just sometimes get really weird when they're touching another dude. Just like, I don't know, guys. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, um... Yeah, but like thankfully the Samuel team and um, and everyone around him is very accepting of this, except for his parents, which uh, that doesn't they don't even get into that until volume four. Uh, well, I mean his his parents are very accepting of him um, as as a person, but they are more confused about uh, him being gay. Yeah, there's a lot going on there, and just. Like I said, I don't feel like Ngozi overplays it. I, I feel like it's a very reasonable amount of Biddy's life, which is otherwise filled with, you know, some academics, but mostly hockey and pies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think in that in that first volume, they had, uh, at the end of the volume, it was the big game. I think it was like the NCAA championship or something. And afterward, she has these, um, these like, production notes of how she... Uh, did research, how she developed these characters and stuff, and she says in that volume, like, this is the most hockey, or this is the most in-depth hockey that you'll probably ever see in this manga, or in, gosh, in this <laughs> comic. Uh, and it, it eventually was, which is disappointing to me as a fan of sports comics, but, like, it's not like it was bad because of that. It's just, uh, this is a comic about this gay baker who likes and plays hockey. And it's not about hockey. Yeah, I think we've talked before, or I know that I've at least said it on Twitter, that sometimes the best sports series aren't the ones that drill down really obsessively into every rule of the sports, but they're ones that allow the sport to be a venue for storytelling about the characters. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's part of the reason that we stand Chihayafuru, because using, you know, the competitions and the dynamics they bring about between, like, team versus individual competitions, you know, why people come to the sport, what satisfaction they get out of it. It's all really just a way to explore character dynamics and histories. And this isn't the same level of Chayafuru, because Chayafuru is like its own godly level when it comes mm-hmm. to going in depth. Also, Chayafuru is much, much longer than Chai, please. Like, oh my god, it's so long. But I really enjoyed this series with so many fun characters. Uh, shout out to another character we haven't mentioned so far, uh, Ford, or the uh, Foxtrot of the Whiskey Tango Foxtrot Trio. She actually becomes the team's second manager after Lardo graduates, and the chapter in which they introduce her is just so much fun. It's <laughs> them trying to find, you know, the right person, and she just has this unassuming but surprisingly commanding experience from all her years working behind the scenes in a drama club. And so she was just a lot of fun there as well. And she uh, had two older brothers that play football. <laughs> So, she, uh, yeah, I think they said at one point, like, oh, like, I think Ransom and Holster had decided to, like, get an apartment together in Boston or something. They're like, how do you feel about this? And she's like, I knew hockey players were tough, but I guess tough 
and in touch with their feelings. And everyone's <laughs> like, she's hired. She's on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, for, for, Ford was a very fun character, even though she effectively only appears for a shorter part of the story, just since she comes into it later. Yeah, I'm sad she didn't have, like, more... Her and Largo didn't have more of a um, position in the series, because I feel like they would both be very fun characters to have many more pages, many more dynamics between characters. With them. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like the eternal quandary with a sports manga, usually, where it's an all-male sport, and it's like, oh, these characters are fun, but I really wish we saw more of the ladies in Haikyuu, you know? I, w- I wish we got more of them as well. Yeah. And I think Ngozi's next comic, I think it is going to involve women. Let's see. I think it has something to do with the club has to win a baseball game to get funding, but they're an animation club or something along those lines. Uh, I don't know when this is coming out anytime soon, since she's obviously been done drawing this comic for a little while, since it's gone to print and everything, but I'm totally fine if she, she takes a little break for a while before starting up her next project of some other people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the classic case of you write these guys really well, and I think you could also write the ladies really well, so how about some ladies? Uh, the manager for the team that Jack eventually joins is also a pretty nice lady. Um, appears even less than Lardo and Ford do, but she's just got like a good head on her shoulders. Uh, Jack does end up joining one of the professional hockey teams. It's not a real-world team because, you know, worry about copyright infringement, <laughs> but it's a lot of fun just seeing his new teammates and apparently like their social media game is really good like they're always doing behind the scenes vlogs and stuff like that and now i'm kind of curious if like real world hockey teams have that level of social media savviness yeah um i've only tried to get into hockey recently uh and it was before i started reading this comic so but like to my observation they don't have nearly as much as it seemed to suggest that uh really called the providence falconers have Mm-hmm. Which is sad, but yeah, the um, most I've gotten into hockey was that the year the Caps were really on a warpath. I was watching like some of the games online, mm-hmm. not online. I was watching some of the games for the final competition, yeah. and it was kind of funny. Someone had to explain to me why hockey games. I think it was my roommate. He had to explain to me that they're in three twenty-minute chunks because they have to like redo the ice that many times. Because <laughs> I came into this and I'm like, why are they doing it like this? This is a really weird <laughs> setup. So, Check, Please is also a series you can enjoy with basically no hockey knowledge, like me, where I was like, I know there's about five people on a team, and they have a really small goal, and they go boom, boom, bam on the ice. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much all you need to know <laughs> to enjoy Check, Please. Um, it does go into some, some minutia uh, with, like, drafting and uh, having a agent, sort of, and uh, playing, it, playing it very minimally. Um, and I, I'm sure... Like both of us would have gained a little more from uh, from what um, was happening on the ice, but uh, it's not like it diminished the value of what was being told. I think I'm basically out of things to say. <laughs> well, speaking of the the product on the ice, um, I think I like what we were talking about before about how she tells these stories about sports without really getting into the sportiness of the sports. Um, but, like, the thing I love about sports is the uh, absolute joy and uh, exhilaration and all all of the other happy emotions that you can have at the, uh, or, yeah, at the moment that you win a game, win uh, the championship, which, uh, spoilers, the Providence Falconers do at one point. Um, 
and as they are on the ice, Biggie and Jack are on the ice. They have been dating, I believe, for the year prior to this. And uh, Biggie just says... And then uh, suddenly Jack is the first openly gay hockey player. <laughs> yeah, Biggie says, kiss me, and Jack kisses him. And, of course, this is on the ice after the Stanley Cup finals. Um, people caught this moment. It is also one of the ballsiest ways to come out to your parents. Yep. <laughs> And then he ignores his phone for, like, a couple of days or something. Well, Biddy definitely has some anxiety, and he's not always the best about managing that anxiety. Uh, yep. We certainly saw that in book four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, like, Jack Blee's captured that, uh, that happiness very well. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Also, Biddy had basically already won over most of the Falconers because he's just been giving uh, Jack this jam, you know, to use, and he's gotten <laughs> everybody hooked on the jam and hooked on the pies. And like I said, there is a long-standing feud in Biddy's family over Jam, so that is actually more of the dust-up later on. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I did like, uh, I forget what his name is, but the Russian guy who's uh, Jack's teammate on the Falconers. Mm-hmm. He was very Potato? Crazy. No, his name wasn't Potato. Nick I don't Tears? remember his name either. Maybe? Anyway. Um, oh, I did know about playoff beards before this, and we definitely saw some people supporting the playoff beards. Oh, yeah. I noticed that. Or now that you mention it, I recall noticing beards. I just thought they were growing beards. <laughs> did not make I the connection. Off topic, but when the Nats were going for their championship this past year, I saw an article of a local guy who had made a joke like seven years ago he wasn't going to shave his beard until they won. And so he had seven years worth of beard. And he was like, I have all... He, it was like, I have this whole grooming routine now for my beard. Like, I have a blow dryer just for my beard. Now shaving this is going to be weird. <laughs> Very intense beard. Ah, oh, man, there could be so many people with corn beards, aren't there? Probably. Quarantine beards. Probably. <sighs> Sorry, back to topic. <laughs> yep. Beards are on topic. Um, uh, let's see, just trying to think of uh, if there's anything else I wanted to mention. I don't remember. The Kickstarters had some really rad um, goodies associated with them in the past years. Like, I actually have a pennant now for the um, Falconers, um, and one for Samwell as well. And one of the rewards was also... Um, Sorry, one of the other goodies included was a batch of a zine that was just some of quote unquote Biddy's pie recipes. Mm. Although Biddy should really know to pre bake his pie dough. Pie dough. I, you know, the crust, you usually want to bake that first mm. before you put the filling in and bake it again. Yep. So glad that I already knew more about that because the zine did not warn me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's just, oh, one thought I had. Um, so someone on uh, in my Twitter sphere made a post the other day where they were talking about another American gay question mark sports comic, uh, The One Fence, um, which is quite different from Check, Please. But I was struck in thinking about how um, even today you see a lot of series which sort of want to imply gayness but not quite go there so much. And I think part of the reason why Check, Please gained such an early following is partially because, A, it was more explicit with Biddy is definitely gay, Biddy is definitely crashing on Zack, his cap, not Zack, Jack, his captain. <laughs> You know, I just combined Jack and Zimmerman right there. Zack. Yeah, well, it works. <laughs> so I think it was partially that, and also that the series delivered on it. It ended up not being queer baiting. Like, they were legitimately a couple halfway through the series. And I think a lot of that is what people want out of their comics. You know, they want follow ups to what feel like early promises made. Also, I thought Fence had some other issues just to do with pacing, yada, mm-hmm. yada, yada. You know, benefit of webcomic, you can. To some extent, you know, determine what your own pacing is going to be because no contracts. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, you're not getting paid immediately to make them. So, 
I get that ag revenue. Yeah, definite trade-offs there. Yeah. Um, and it's not just like Biggie had all of these very easy things going on in his life throughout the three, four years at Samwell. Uh, Biggie is a Red Bull procrastinator when it comes to all of his academics. Like, yep. he's trying to learn French and just doing poorly with it, even though he <laughs> chats with Jack in French sometimes, because Jack is from Quebec, so he is bilingual. Haha. Yep. Yeah, in the early going, he was actually talking to his dad in French. Yeah. But um, there's also in, in book three, Jack has joined the Falconers. They're dating, but they can't really come out with it because he, Jack doesn't want to be that first person at that point. Um, and they don't even stay, tell it to their team. So Biggie is just like... Uh, well, Jack starts mentioning it to some people on the team, at least. Right. Um, yeah. Like, I know he said, like, at one point, oh, yeah, my boyfriend made these, and his teammates, like, haha, and it's like, wait, no, you're not joking, right? Saying saying that someone has a boyfriend, as a, mm-hmm. as a calling someone gay is a serious offense, and it's like, oh, good, someone's, like, harassment training really took effect. Right. Because yeah. Jack is being like, no, say, no, I meant that quite literally. I do not have a girlfriend. It is actually a boyfriend who's been baking me all these pies. Ah. And they actually say, like, oh, that was in the harassment training. I'm not supposed to do that. Uh, but, yeah, like, Biggie's anxiety and stress about not being able to say anything about uh, his troubles with Jack just finally reaches uh, a boiling point to the point that Jack like lands in Providence and then drives the however many hours from Providence to Massachusetts to just see him and come out to the rest of the team. Very cute moment. Also, the entire team is like, all right, pay up. Who yep. had bets on this happening now? Who had bets on this happening later? You know. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they do they do live together in the same house. I mean. Yeah, they all knew, and they're yeah, all I, like. Uh, we have to take this to our graves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't remember if it was in the comic proper or one of the extra comics. Ngozi would usually do like a little extra comic to accompany each update, like a one-panel joke or something. But I think there was definitely a couple where like folks had walked in on Biddy, like obviously calling Jack sweetheart and everything. They were like, we cannot discuss this. Yeah. But anyway, I don't think we want to give away every single gag in the series, although there's plenty more fun moments, I think, for new readers to catch up with if you guys are listening to this and haven't actually read Check, Please, which right. might happen because this is normally a sports anime podcast, not a sports media podcast. Can't Wait, be sports media podcast. makes it sound like we're still talking about real sports. Yeah, um, the next time, uh, next episode, we'll be talking about the NBA Finals. Ah, uh, you're going through your backlog, huh? Yep. <laughs> well, with that Jordan documentary coming out. Uh, but yeah, unless you had anything else, Helen. Mm-hmm. It was a fun series, and it added in ended in a satisfying place like maybe a little overly saccharine but i felt like it was a good landing as well which is something you always worry about with these series especially since this is her first comic um you know ngozi didn't play hockey before apparently she just threw herself deep in the research this is her first comic that she was just coming up with for ideas i think while she was at scad and so this is a very admirable first work and yeah i think she's gonna be able to produce you know however many more stories she wants to do and have them all just be as equally charming and delightful. Yeah, she started the hockey research as like a screenplay for a class in Yale or something. Yeah, I think that was her undergrad. Yeah, so like she obviously knows how to write uh, because this comic was good and also she went to Yale that's definitely, or that's generally a good credential to have. Or it could just mean that your family has a lot of money, but I don't think that was the case there. Yeah, I mean immigrant wherever you said, oh my gosh. Her name is Nigerian, so I suspect her family comes from Nigeria at some point. She does say in the back of one of the books where she is from, or that she is an immigrant from, or her parents are that she's an immigrant from uh, wherever. Uh, But yeah, I like this comic as well. I'm glad I finally read it. 
Um, there were a lot of stuff, a lot of things. Um, like, I really liked about it, particularly in books three and four, as you got into um, Biggie's life as a junior senior, as uh, as he dealt with more and more things with Jack and uh, PR and junk. But uh, I guess their life in college was fun as well. And whatever tub juice is sounds terrifying. One does not talk about tub juice. One merely ingests tub juice and <laughs> thinks about it again later. Uh, if they were... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, let's close this episode out. Helen, where can we find you on the internet? In the internet, I don't know. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Wandering Dreamer, and you can find me doing manga and light novel reviews, as well as co-hosting one of my two usual podcasts over at The OASG. On Twitter, that's at The OASG. If you wanted to, you could type it into Google as the Organization of Antisocial Geniuses, but no need. And then the other post podcast i co-host is one that i am on with Corey and her friend april called manga in your ears although i was not on one of the recent episodes because i was like oh no i've been reading too much other manga i don't have time for this manga oh no <laughs> the problem of too much manga exactly like all right we managed through without you um and anyway you can find me on twitter at compassion k you can find this podcast on twitter at taiku podcast that's what i'm doing right now I don't remember anymore um it's t-a-i-i-k-u um and you can find all of our episodes over at taikupodcast.com. We can also find the Monkey in Your Ears episodes. So, uh, if you like a lot of podcasts, go over there. Anyway, thanks, Helen, for coming on for this crossover podcast. No problem. And now I'm going to try and manipulate you into doing some other sports adjacent podcasts. Uh, I mean, I'm all for manipulation. We talked about Fastest Finger first. That was sports. Yeah, but that was more sports than Kono no Otame. The Koto one. The Koto one I want to oh, talk yeah, about. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, maybe that can be in a couple months. <laughs> Until next time, folks. Bye. Quebec's Nordiques and the golden sails have left town. The Rockies and the North Stars have both disappeared. So support your team while we just dream of our golden years. Support your team. Sitting in my chair. Oh, okay. I just heard a lot of munching around. Munching. Look, I stole this chair out of my mom's kitchen. It may or may not be older than me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Uh...